continuing in our series this morning through Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. So you'll see in your bulletin a, a couple of pa- or few passages that we'll be reading together. We'll read first from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14, and then Song of Songs chapter 1 verses 9 through 16, and then Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 32. Come now before God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. God says this, you shall not commit adultery. And then if you turn over to Song of Songs chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. And then Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking at the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's come now before him and ask for his help and understanding in applying this word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that it is indeed a day set apart for us to gather together, to sing your praises, to hear you speak to us. And we pray now that you would indeed speak to us, that we would hear not the voice of a man, but the voice of our God from heaven, that we would hear you speak, and we pray that your spirit would take your word and that you would write it upon our hearts, that you would cause those this morning who are dead to live, that you would cause your people who find themselves struggling to be comforted. And those who find themselves to be far too comfortable this morning, 
we pray that you would confront them and challenge them with the truth of your word. God, you know us and you know our hearts. You know that some of us are anxious to hear you speak this morning, that others of us come and we feel that we, we are threatened by doubts and others feel threatened by circumstances, by your providence. Father, some of us come this morning and we are simply far too comfortable with our lives. And we need to hear your voice. We all need to hear your voice this morning. We ask that you would graciously reveal to us the depths of our sin as we study your word. That you would show us and remind us that we are far worse than we really think. We pray at the same time that you would take us to the gospel and remind us that though we are more sinful than we know, that we are also in Jesus more loved and more accepted and more secure in him than we could have ever dreamed possible. We pray that you would do this for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we talked about the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. And I got home Sunday afternoon and I thought to myself, I really should have warned everybody that The number seven follows number six. Um, Because today we come to this command about adultery, and it's the one that has a tendency to make people uncomfortable. Um, You see, the challenge, I think, for us today is to, on the one hand, not be unnecessarily graphic, but also to not try and be more pure than God himself. Um, That God actually has a lot to say about this topic. And in the midst of all that, we, we absolutely must talk about this topic because we live in a culture that forces us to deal with this topic daily and regularly, regularly in our lives. You know, when I was growing up, I watched uh, a lot of old Western movies and, um, you know, the ones with John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and, you know, those, those good movies. And in a lot of those Westerns, you... <laughs> the storyline, you know, follows a group of people moving west and pushing back the frontier, you know. And, um, you know, at some point in the movie, you know, they they always seem to be going through some hostile Indian territory. And, you know, you, you would feel it coming, you know, this caravan of wagons and there's hills on either side. And the music, you know, would, would amp up and you could just feel an attack coming and, before you knew it, the horizon on every side, just Indians as far as you could see. And arrows would start flying and the Indians were screaming and they were coming after the cowboys, you know, going, going west. And, um, and you might even hear in some of these movies, someone scream, circle the wagons. And they pull these wagons into a tight circle because you see the attack was coming from every Side And so they would, to protect themselves because they were so vulnerable, they pulled themselves into a circle um, and they had a fight in every direction. And the feeling was that they were extremely vulnerable, um, that they were exposed and the fight was coming in every direction. And 
I would say to you this morning that we live in a culture that is absolutely screaming at us from every direction when it comes to this topic of physical intimacy and sexuality. We are surrounded on every side. And don't fool yourselves. The arrows and the spears, they are flying. You just have to think briefly about it. I mean, from music to television to movies to the Internet to books and magazines to uh, clothing to casual conversation to countless advertisements. I mean, it's everywhere. Our culture is obsessed with it. And perhaps even most dangerously, you will sense that the attack is not just coming from outside of you, but that it's also coming from within you, your heart. You see, our culture obviously has much to say about the physical intimacy between a man and a woman that's in view in this command. But our question isn't so much what does culture say, but what does God say? And I want to suggest to you this morning that there are three biblical principles that must be held together when it comes to this issue, and they are these. The glory of physical intimacy inside of marriage, the danger of physical intimacy outside of marriage, and the sacredness of physical intimacy inside of marriage. First, the glory of physical intimacy inside of marriage. You know, the Bible has an unbelievably, incredibly high and lofty view of physical intimacy inside of marriage. Really, the negative of this command, you shall not commit adultery, I think, can really only be understand, understood properly in light of the positive. Okay, In other words, designed by God, this physical intimacy inside of marriage is a glorious thing. And because it is so great, because it is so wonderful, because it is so beautiful, God says, don't you dare treat it carelessly. See, only when you have the kind of view that the Bible has regarding this topic will you begin to understand why God is so serious about protecting it. Begin with me by thinking back to creation, right? There in the garden, prior to sin, before anything was twisted, before anything was broken, God made man, but by, man, by himself, he wasn't complete. And when you're reading the Bible and you're reading those first few pages of the Bible, that point should absolutely blow your mind. <laughs> that God made a perfect world and he made man in this perfect world. And in this perfect world without sin, man was lonely. The first description of loneliness in the Bible has nothing to do with sin. So God responds and he makes woman. And before any corruption or depravity was a part of God's creation, we are told that the two should be united and become one flesh. And they were naked and unashamed. Physical intimacy was God's gift to his perfect creation. I mean, think of it this way. God doesn't tell us everything about the world as it existed in paradise, right? There are a lot of questions that we have about that world. And he doesn't say it. There are really only two chapters of the Bible devoted to that paradise. But God does make sure and highlights this fact. He makes sure that you know that the physical intimacy that we are talking, it is not a result of the fall. 
God meant it for the good of his creation. Man and woman were made for each other. They, look, they were made to relate to each other in every dimension. Emotionally, socially, morally, psychologically, intellectually. You can't separate physical intimacy from all the other areas that God intends for man and woman to be intimate with each other. It is the physical intimacy inside of marriage, though, that is the pinnacle of that deep connectedness in every other area. You see, naked and unashamed involves way more than just the physical. But God does intend that physical intimacy be the glorious expression of what he intended for his creation. You know, in our scripture reading, I I included a portion from the Song of Songs. And I'm aware that there have been different interpretations of this book throughout the church's history. And I don't want to get into those now. But I think by far the most credible interpretation of that book is a literal one. And the reason I bring it up is to remind you that the Bible and God are in no way embarrassed by this subject. Okay? We obviously don't have the time to address it in any kind of detail, but this book, if you read it, it is filled with racy and descriptive passages. I know that we are removed by culture and translators, honestly, have not done a very good job of translating this book because they veil some of the more blunt uh, readings of that book. But here you have, you know, metaphors throughout used to, in poetic fashion to describe the glory and wonder of physical intimacy between a husband and wife. This is God's word and you cannot be more pure than God. If you try to be, something is obviously wrong with you. This is God's gift to his creation. Now listen, what you see in the majority of our culture today is a twisting of God's design, right? And I think... I think that what you see, though it's rarely articulated, is really a longing that cannot possibly be explained as if it were purely a physical impulse of man or woman. And I know that's what a lot of people would have us believe. That physical intimacy is just a matter of biology, it's just a matter of passion. But don't you see, the reason the longing really is so intense, and the reason people chase after the pinnacle of intimacy. It really is because God made his creation to be naked and ashamed, uh, unashamed. He made man and woman to experience the glory of intimacy at every possible level. He made man and woman to know and be known by one another completely, to be completely exposed and vulnerable before each other. And at the same time, at the same time that they are exposed and vulnerable, to be completely safe and accepted. And so you have to hear this. That is absolutely why God intends for this physical intimacy only ever to be shared by one man and one woman inside of marriage. Because, see, you can't be both vulnerable and safe with someone unless you are bound to each other by covenant commitment. You see, it's only in that boundary that you can experience the glory and goodness God intended you to experience. Only when you understand the glory God intended can you understand this command. It is this high view of God that, is, of, that God has about this that really leads to our protecting our sexuality. You know, I used to buy sunglasses uh, 
nearly every time I turned around. Um, I, I, I went through so many pairs of sunglasses. And I, I used to always buy those cheap, you know, $6 gas station sunglasses. And, uh, you know, I would, I would lose them. I would throw them on the seat of the car and sit on them, break them, scratch the lenses all up, couldn't see out of them, just go buy another $6 pair. I could never imagine spending more than like $100 on a pair of sunglasses. All these people were spending so much money on these sunglasses. What a waste. Um, but, you know, I never had a pair of sunglasses that lasted more than a month. And so I fixed my revolving sunglasses condition, right? Um, Do you know how I fixed it? Easy. I I went out and bought a $180 pair of sunglasses. You you know, I didn't lose those sunglasses. (laughs) I didn't just throw them on the seat of the car and forget where they were and sit on them. And, you you know, I, I didn't, you know, all of a sudden I was, I had this special cloth given to me by, you know, and I'm wiping the lenses and I buy a hard case for them and, all that kind of stuff. I mean, in protecting it. The key to promoting chastity and purity begins with understanding its value. The key to, is to see the glory and beauty of God's design, or else you won't understand anything about this commandment. Well, second, you need to see the other side of the coin. Physical intimacy inside of marriage is glorious, and it's meant to be so. But here's the other side of that coin. Because it is so powerfully good. It is also powerfully dangerous. Here, I'll make my point very simple. What happens if you take the physical intimacy out of the place, if you take physical intimacy out of the place God intends it to be? And the short answer is this it will destroy you. And because physical intimacy is intended to be the pinnacle expression of intimacy at every other level, it will destroy you at every level. It will not just harm you physically. It will harm and destroy you emotionally and spiritually and intellectually and psychologically. It'll tear your life apart. I can't remember if I used this illustration before or not, but let's imagine that you have a pet goldfish, and that little goldfish, you know, is in its little goldfish world every day inside that little bowl that sits on your kitchen table or whatever on the counter. And suppose you start to think, you know, that... This goldfish, it shouldn't be confined to this bowl. I mean, such a limited space, and there's so much to experience in this world outside of that bowl. And so you decide that you're going to set that goldfish free from its, you know, glass prison, right? And so you scoop him out, and you place him on the kitchen table, and, and you just killed that goldfish, right? I mean, the goldfish is only free. It's only free, only ever free when it lives inside the, the boundaries made for it. The same physical intimacy that is glorious inside of marriage, glorious for the intimacy it provides between husband and wife, glorious even, I think, as a foretaste of heaven, naked and unashamed, glorious as a sign of life for bringing children into the world. That same physical intimacy that is glorious inside of marriage has the power outside of marriage to rip families apart, to create deep fear, guilt, insecurity, to twist your views, to harden your heart, and even bring the judgment of God. Why is that so? How does it become so dangerous? It's the goldfish principle, right? It's only free. That goldfish is only free when confined to water, and this physical intimacy is only good when confined to covenant commitment. Real love And real intimacy and real safety and vulnerability can only ever be experienced 
Listen to this. This is the way I put it. Covenant, commitment, whatever. It can only be experienced when you are stuck with somebody, for better or worse. When you can't get out. That's the only time you can really be you and be safe at the same time. Now, before I try and make some application about this, I want to say just a little bit more about the extent of this command. Because this the danger... Of course, it's also internal, and that's why we read Matthew chapter 5. You know, by talking today about physical intimacy, I'm really trying to avoid being unnecessarily graphic for you. But what you hear Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5 is that this command also addresses your heart. So in this somewhat shocking statement, Jesus is telling you to deal drastically with not only the act of adultery, but also the lust that is behind it. He is saying even the thoughts, even the lust will destroy you and warp you in every possible way. That's how dangerous this is. So he says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into into hell. And then he says, you know, chop off your hand in the next part. You know, I am fairly certain of this. That Jesus did not intend for us all to leave church today and go home and maim ourselves, you know, with kitchen uh, cutlery and that kind of thing. But, But he is saying that you have to deal with lust drastically, seriously, because it is so dangerous. You know, I read a, a quote a while ago that I think is is fairly helpful, and the quote was this. It's about the pornography industry, and it says the pornography industry makes its billions of dollars on customer dissatisfaction. That is its essence. It never satisfies and only creates a thirst for more until it completely destroys you and wrecks your life. Lust is always like that. It is desire that ends in destruction and not fulfillment. See, the intimacy is, this intimacy is powerful and it's powerfully good and glorious inside of marriage, but powerfully destructive outside of marriage, even if it is just in your thought life. I was watching the National Ge- Geographic channel one day and I showed this little red salamander or newt thing. I don't know what, I don't even know the difference between the two, but whatever it was, this red little lizard thing is swimming in this creek and they got their HD cameras watching this little red lizard thing. And when this thing, it's going down this creek and it's flowing in the current, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But then there's this big frog in its path. And that frog decides to make his move. And he pounces on that little red lizard thing. And in an instant, it's gone. I mean, it just swallows it up. And so they back it up, you know, a bunch of times and they show you, you know, the frog pouncing and just swallowing this thing whole and all that kind of stuff. But, but that, that really isn't what makes the story interesting. <laughs> Within 30 seconds of swallowing that lizard, that frog crawled out of the water onto the bank and died. And then a few seconds later, the dead frog's mouth opened and the red lizard thing crawled out of the mouth, back into the creek, unscathed, and just went on its way. Fine. There's some poison on the skin of this lizard thing. And when the frog took it in, it was over. 
The physical intimacy, listen, whether it is the act or the lust, it is only designed for marriage. And it may at times, to you, look good outside of marriage. And it may look harmless to flirt with it. And it may seem attractive to push the limits. And it may seem to hold the promise of fulfillment. It may seem, it may seem at times to be able to satisfy your hunger and your thirst. But you reach out and grab it, and it will kill you, is what the Bible says. Do you think God is trying to keep you away from fulfillment with this command? He gives you this command so that you will be fulfilled. The thing that is so good will also break you into a thousand pieces. So mercifully and graciously, Jesus calls you to deal with your sin at the root in your heart and to deal with it drastically. And for some of you, this has to mean setting up very, very clear boundaries in the workplace. And clear boundaries when you travel for your work. And for others, this means you just got to stop buying certain books and stop watching certain TV shows and avoiding certain places. And for others, this means... You just really need to just get rid of your computer or or get some kind of Internet filter. I mean, the point is, is that you have to deal with this drastically. Because Jesus is saying your life is at stake. Couch out your eye if you have to. Cut off your hand if you have to. Your life is at stake. Well, finally, I want you to see the sacredness of this physical intimacy inside of marriage. And to say the sacredness of physical intimacy inside of marriage is simply my way of saying that that it is holy. I stole this title, the title for the sermon from Hebrews chapter 13. In that chapter, you know, the author, he commands that marriage should be honored by all. And then he says that the marriage bed should be kept pure. Now, certainly we should do that. Because of God's design in creation. Okay? I mean, that makes sense. And we talked about that in the first point. To leave God's design in creation is to twist and pervert what God intended for your good. So certainly I think that this means, because of creation, that we're to handle this topic with extreme reverence. It's not a topic of humor. It isn't to be treated lightly or laughed at. You you need to watch the way you talk to your friends. Do you honor God's God's design here in your speech? Or do you turn what God intended to be beautiful and glorious into a cheap laugh? I think that we honor God's design as well, not simply through avoidance. In other words, what I mean is, you know, we can try and avoid the dangers of things like lust in our thought lives. But, but we're also called, on the other hand, in Scripture, to be proactive, even in our thought lives, of the pursuit of holiness. Right? I mean, here's Paul. He writes to the Philippians and he says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So physical intimacy inside of marriage It should be treated in these ways because of God's design and creation. And we could come up with many more ways to apply it, okay? But see, the physical intimacy between husband and wife is sacred, not just because of creation. It is also sacred because of redemption. It is sacred because God has chosen. You need to hear this. 
God has chosen this intimacy to be the display of the glories of redemption. And I know that because we don't tend to have a high enough view of this, that that sounds really, really scandalous. Well, guess what? God thought it was worth the risk to be that scandalous. In Ephesians, Paul writes, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, he says. But I am talking about Christ and the church. And I know we kind of, wedding sermons, you know, we kind of run over that. And it's, uh, he is talking about the physical intimacy expressed between husband and wife. In other words, treat this holy, treat it sacred because it is to be a reflection of Jesus' union with the church. The deep, deep yearning ever since the fall has been to get back to paradise. To get back to the garden. The deep longing is for safety and vulnerability. To know and to be known, and it's really a desire to know what the Bible calls in its language. is a desire that we all have to be naked and unashamed. And you really do have to see this physical intimacy inside of marriage is sacred because it is a picture of what we have in the gospel. It is because of Jesus that you both know and are known. It is in Him that there is absolute, absolute safety and vulnerability at the same time. It is the glories of redemption, Paul tells us, that are being pictured. In Jesus, we are naked and unashamed. But here's the deal. This command makes us most uncomfortable, not because it's a taboo topic, although maybe it is that, but because we all have failed. That's why it makes us uncomfortable. We haven't had the high and lofty view that God has. And we haven't treated it wholly. And what's more is that we have flirted with the dangerous power of this physical intimacy outside of marriage. Outside of its intended boundaries, whether that's action or thought. So my question is this. How can you get free? I mean, not just... Of the guilt, although you need freedom from that, but also the power of this, because it seeks to hold you and enslave you. In another very risky move, God told a man named Hosea to go and marry a woman named Gomer. Who was Gomer? An adulteress. I would say that's a pretty risky move. You don't hear God saying that all over the place. (laughs) Go find a prostitute and marry her. Um, But that's what God did. But you see, it's not just... He didn't say, go find someone who used to be an adulteress. He said, go marry someone who will leave you for other lovers. And... Here's another thing. Raise the children that she has because of her unfaithfulness. Well, Hosea married this woman, and sure enough, she left him, just like God said. And I wonder, I just wonder what you would have told Hosea if you were his friend. 
I, I wonder if you would have said, it's not your fault, man. I wonder if you would have said, you're free. She's the one that committed adultery. Just leave her. Stay away from her. She is messed up. She's troubled. But not God. God came to Hosea and he said, boy, go and get her. The actual words are these. Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. So, you know, Hosea goes to get her back. But to add insult to injury, he has to pay money to get his own wife back. Now, why would God do something like this? You really should read Hosea. It's a good book. It's because God is saying through Hosea's life that it's kind of like a, a living parable. He is saying this. This is a picture of what I do all the time. I show my love to those who have turned their backs on me for other lovers. Immediately after God told Hosea to get his cheating wife, this is what God said. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they run to other gods. He is saying, don't you get it? I go after the adulteress. I pay a price to get her back. And dear friends, that price he pays is the blood of his only begotten son. And that is the story of the Bible. That's what God is like. You see, to be free of both the guilt and the power of this sin, you need to see two things. You need to see who you really are. And you need to see who Jesus really is. Because you see, only when you find the glory and beauty of being known by him and knowing him, can you have peace. And only when you rest in that love story, will you be freed to stop looking for intimacy, security, and significance in all the wrong places. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you that we can hear your voice. We thank you that your spirit attends your word and that it bring, and your spirit brings conviction and also comfort through the gospel. Father, you know who we are. You know that we are lawbreakers that we are sinners. Open our eyes to know who Jesus really is, that he is. He is the one who came, who left glory, and came to pursue adulterers like us, those who have chased and pursued other gods, those who have left the God who loves us. And we pray that that story would so thrill us and excite us that it would indeed transform us inside and out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.